BJ Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. All right, so welcome back, folks that have been uh, hanging out with us and checking in on my UN50 podcast. Hope everything everybody's been doing well. Welcome back for those of you uh, who are consistent listeners. Thank you uh, for hanging out with us. And uh, for those of you that are new, my name is BJ Council, uh, and UN50 is what uh, is the is what we do. It's about teaching people how to safely interact with law enforcement, and we have different guests. Um, that talk about something beyond law enforcement, but it all relates back to um, UN50. Our primary goal when we started this in 2015 is we, we need people to, to get home. And that's kind of what it is ultimately. We're not concerned about people really, whether or not what, what side of the aisle, so to speak, they're on. It is the ultimate goal of everybody getting to the house and getting home. And, and that's what we want to do, want to save lives. And so tonight, our guest, we were Serena Ballantyne, uh, was going to be here with us as a telecommunicator, retired from the Durham Police Department, but she had some family things she had to take care of. So we have Ms. Gerald Anderson, and we'll introduce her in just a minute to join us. Uh, so my nephew, Andrew Council, how's it been going? I'll introduce you as one of my co-hosts. Harmony uh, Chavis is also my co-host. She may come. She's got some things going on as well. She may pop in, but we have uh, Andrew. So what's up, my man? Nothing much, just um, like I've been doing, working, um, getting that, I guess, like working life balance, find, finding that work life balance, um, and also learning the the benefit of saying no, learning the benefit of how to how to receive. Like I usually don't like to receive like gifts, receive anything. So I'm learning the the I guess like the how to receive things and accept them respectfully, respect them. How do, you know what I mean, do you know what I mean when I say that though? Yeah, it's, what do you say? What do you mean by how to receive stuff? Well, somebody said you mean like how to receive a hundred dollars, they don't have any strings attached. I mean, that's easy, but what are you talking about? Like, for example, like if friends want to like get, I'm not I'm usually the person to give things. Like my love language is to to give, not really to receive. So gotcha. when people, yes. I feel kind of like you know that feeling you get when you're sitting at a table and someone sings happy birthday to you, you kind of just yeah. sit. That's what that yeah. means. So I'm learning how not to have to feel like a little shell and accept it and, and love it and learn it. Yeah, you know what? I totally agree with that. And because you're my nephew, I can tell you that's uh, probably rooted in our background and our family. <laughs> so just <laughs> just know that I too have those issues. So don't feel alone on that one. But I totally get you. It's it's kind of it can be a little uncomfortable. And but that's just kind of how we we were kind of raised on uh, accepting praise and gratitude from everyone else. So yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that. So yeah, I get it. Thank you. Definitely get it. So cool. Thank you for being here. And uh, and. Uh, Glad your things are working out since you were just entering the workforce. So glad that's working out. <laughs> so Gerald Anderson, I've known her for, let's just say 20 years plus, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> she was a, when I first met her, she was at the Durham Police Department as a telecommunicator. Uh, a lot of folks, that's a 911 operator, but the professional name is telecommunicator. So she's gonna introduce herself to her, but I would, I, just so you understand that when I say she's a professional, she is very involved in her profession by being a member of the, the, the organization. She'll tell you about that. But and she works in Orange County, but she really is involved in how the profession and she trains other telecommunicators very committed uh, to the cause and to her profession. So I'm just glad that she's here to talk about 911 calls and uh, especially as it relates to um, 
the black community and marginalized communities and how they use 911 and, and help understanding that. So Gerald, thanks for um, joining us. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, so go ahead and give us a little brief description about you know your little background and we're gonna get right, right into it because I know you guys got to get on the road. Oh, just as a side note, she's also doing us a huge favor. Uh, she's in West Virginia doing some workshop or conference. She can tell you more about that. So she's actually staying in West Virginia to do this podcast for me instead of traveling through the mountains so she's got about a four or five hour trip ahead of her to head back to Durham so thank you for that that is definitely appreciated so Gerald tell us a little bit about yourself well good evening everyone I'm glad to be here and thank you for inviting me um, I currently work for Orange County Emergency Services where I am a recruitment and outreach coordinator so I am no longer in a full-time telecommunicator uh, I actually don't work for any of the five divisions of my agency I answer directly to the director um, in my career, my 30-year career, I have been a telecommunicator, as uh, BJ alluded to. We have known each other for over 20 years. I started my career in Wilmington, moved to Durham to take the position of telecommunicator in the 90s, is all I'll say, and <laughs> stayed there for quite some time before I worked for the North Carolina Justice Academy, where I was in charge of the telecommunicator certification course, which is still a viable product of training for our staff. I am a 24-year member of ATCO, which stands for the Association of Public Communications Officials, and I am an active board member for the North Carolina chapter, which I have been most of my career. I am very passionate about the work that telecommunicators do, particularly the training that they receive, and I do have my own side training company, but I adjunct for the APCO Institute as well as a couple of community colleges in North Carolina. So I stay busy um, in person as well as online. Uh, during COVID, my, my work life did not slow down at all. There's lots to be done. So right. I'm glad to be here to talk to you about something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, thank you. And, and as I said before, you, what we try to do at UN50 is try to look at the, the bigger picture. I mean, we're all, everybody understands, well, the reason I started UN50 was because of the killings of black bodies about law enforcement. But having said that, I, I always say we want the community, we believe in reform and, and whatever needs to change in order to, to build a better relationship between the black and marginalized community and law enforcement. But we also realize that we can't have this discussion in a vacuum, it's bigger than law yes. enforcement. And so we bring folks on to, to kind of, what else can we do? How else can we do that? Mental health, schools, educators, all of that is, is needs to be part of this conversation and at the table. And one of the first things that also she didn't mention that people talk about first responders and the first things that pop in their mind usually is firefighters and, and police officers. And in reality, the first responders are really the telecommunicators. They're the ones that get the initial call. They're the ones that, that get that fresh and hot. And then they actually can can make the call based on the information they're getting to relay to the firefighters or police officers. So if nothing else, if you don't take anything from this particular podcast, is changing your mindset when you hear first responders and is the unseen responders, first responders that you don't see. And that's going to be telecommunicators or 911 operators. So just because I owe them, you know, my life is in their hands as to when I'm going to a call that could be volatile, as much information as I can get from them. So my hat's off and my respect for her, the work that she does and her colleagues uh, is to acknowledge the fact that the true first responders are actually the 911 communicators and telecommunicators. So I just want to make sure people know that if you take anything away from this moment, that they are the first responders. And then I mean that I'm not, I'm not, that's, that's coming from the gut because I, I know I, I had to be trained by the old school person that said I was speaking too low when I first started working at the Durham Police Department. And what she basically told me, if you speak low, I can't get you help. And so I had to train myself, you know, like Andrew, you're saying receiving stuff, getting information and coming out of my shell. If I want my, if I get in a situation, she was teaching me, you got to speak a little louder. And I got that from a 911 communicator. I did not get that from an officer. I got it from a 911 communicator concerned about my safety. So um, that's real. So that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. So just to piggyback on what you said, um, we do teach them when we're training new telecommunicator staff 
that they are the first first responder and they're the first responder telephonically. They're not there on scene, though technology is soon coming that they are going to be there, not just with their ears, but with their eyes. Wow. And so we're already starting to think about how are we going to train them and prepare them for what they've never been able to see. And the things that they can see now are, you know, we can't even, you know, imagine what it's going to look like, but we're going to have to train them psychologically how to deal with some of the things that our responders in the field have always been able to see. So that's a, that's another podcast coming. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, that's the first I've heard of, but that, that is, that's going to be, that's a game changer. Like you said, psychologically, because they're going to be seeing some of the stuff either just before it happens or when it's happening in progress and or right after. Yeah, you're exactly right. So I didn't mean to, to freak you out, but that technology just, just for FYI has been around for quite some time. Um, I remember going to a conference many years ago and got to preview it. One of the first people to, to preview that type of technology, it's been around and has now been refined, but it's very expensive. And so it has taken up until now for for agencies. Now we're trying to get them on different things and get everybody moving in the same direction. But it takes a lot of money. Well, since you brought it up, and I mean, I don't want to belabor that, but also, oh, sure. so so when when this happens, what what is it that we're going to be hearing? What is the name of that when we say when we hear it? What what is it called? Well, it's probably going to be toward uh, part of the EziNet, which is what agencies are now, it's a new different phone system because okay. you know we can do text to 911. Right. And and pretty soon people are gonna be able to send us pictures. Okay. Like I said, it's already here. And the next thing they'll be able to send us is video. Okay. And you call it EziNet? Yeah, it's part of the it's part of the EziNet setup. And um, Durham is already the Durham agency is already on has EziNet installed. Okay. Orange County just had ours, and it's in the testing phase. And it's going to be something that's going to be in every one all 100 counties eventually. Wow. And so wow. It, it's it's here. It's live. Ooh. It's it's now. Wow. You know, we used to call it Next Gen Now One One. It's now. Wow. Now One One. It's now. But um, to talk, to get us back to, to where we were, um, in my career, and, and it's very fortunate, BJ, to work with you, you were always, and this is true, y'all, she was always one of the good ones in the field. Um, I didn't know someone to tell I had to speak up, but I'm glad they did, because I always could hear her. She was always very clear in her traffic and always respectful to communications, which um, is great. We are the unseen people. I like to tell when I train people that we're the first ones. Without us, nothing gets started. Most of the stuff you're gonna get comes across a 911 or an emergency or non-emergency line. Mm -hmm. And so what I would want to share with people tonight, which is very important, is that never think that the telecommunicator that takes your call doesn't know that it's an emergency. Okay, we know that whatever the situation is for that caller, it's an emergency to them, even if in our training, we know that it's not a quote unquote true emergency. The public is not trained the same way that the 911 staff is. Okay, so when I'm training staff, I tell them that you will be trained and you know what it is, what a true emergency is. The public does not. Uh, But when BJ and I were coming up, the public service training that we got and everyone got was the same in an emergency dial 911. It was plastered against every police car, law enforcement agency in an emergency dial 911. That was all the training that the public used to receive. Mm -hmm. And so we never took time to teach them what a true emergency is. And because of that, the 911 system gets a lot of calls about a lot of things that have nothing to do with the services that we provide. But the public has been trained in an emergency. That means if my toilet overflows, that means if um, my neighbor's uh, playing loud music and I've been over there twice and the police have been there twice, that means I need to know what time it is. I need to know what day it is. I need to know if the parade route is still going to go the same way. What time does the parade start? What time do the fireworks start? How do you spell the word monopoly? That means anything 
that anybody doesn't know what to do comes to 911. And I need people to understand that there's a reason why we have non-emergency numbers. But if you call 911, we're going to help you. We're going to try our best to answer your questions. But when you call for things that aren't life-threatening or in progress or, or anything of, of an emergency type nature, what you do is you clog up the system and you hold up somebody from getting through that house might be on fire, someone might be having a heart attack, my baby just fell and bumped his head, you know, hey, I can't wake my mother, she's not responding. Those calls might be being held back because I'm talking to you about what time does the parade start. So you actually had some, I want people to understand what she just, that list she just gave is what actual telephone 911 calls to come in. Somebody actually calls you to spell Monopoly? Yes, somebody actually called me about their toilet overflowing and it's a service call, but it doesn't require a police officer. Right. And I was able to tell them because I've had my toilet overflow, what to do on a 911 line. Yes, wow. I have had to tell people what day it is, what time it is. Um, are, people call a lot and want to know, are the roads open when we have inclement weather? Yeah. Um, instead of turning on the news. Right. And exactly. I'd like to just share this because it's going to snow again one day in the winter <laughs> or we're going to have ice. And and when the highway patrol or the newscaster says, please do not call 911. Please don't call when your power is out. We don't control that. Yeah. But you should call 1-800-POWER-ON and they can tell you how long it's going to be out. Yeah. But it's those things because people aren't educated and that's why we're here tonight is to educate on how to use, effectively use the 911 system to get some assistance. And, and, and whatever we're not doing right, we're gonna to try to help you be fix it so that you don't get frustrated. The people working in the system don't get frustrated. But one of the things I tell our staff is that they don't know how the system works and they don't care when it's their emergency. Yeah. All they care about is, could you please send somebody? Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about one of the things that, uh, I think you and I have talked about it before we came on was people understanding that when they're talking to you, like the person who answers the call and you get this, you know, y'all need to hurry and send someone that, that there's dispatching is actually going on. You, they're, sure. You're trying to get as much information as you can. The person you're, you're communicating now I have called 911. I'm talking to a body and that, and I am yelling at you and said, you need to send somebody, you send somebody to kind of give us a little bit of what that looks like. Because sure. they're like, well, you're talking to me. I don't hear you sending anybody and what, you know, kind of what that looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. So before I can even get there, let me just give a uh, 20 second lesson on what happens when you dial 911. Okay. So uh -huh. when you, whether you call from your cell phone or there are some people in the world that still have landlines. All right. And there are still a few pay phones in the country. So no matter what you call on, when you call 911, the phone system is developed to imp impose false rings so that when you call, you know that the phone system is working. Mm -hmm. Now, BJ, we're old enough to remember when you used to have real telephones and that's what you had. And, <laughs> and you'd pick up the phone and you'd listen for a dial tone before you dial. Or right. if you picked it up and you didn't listen and you dialed and you put it to your ear to hear nothing, you'd hang it up to reset it and dial again. Right. Okay, so this is, I want everybody on this. Every time the telephone rings is 10 seconds. So the telephone system imposes false rings so that while your call is being transferred, hopefully to, to correct public safety answering point or PSAP, all right? So I live in Durham. When I dial 911, I expect to get Durham. Right. I work in Orange County, but if I call 911 in Orange County, I expect to get Orange County. But if I live on this, there's a little funny section between Durham County and Orange County Sometimes people tell me they live in Durham, but they're so close to the Orange County line that sometimes their call gets routed to the, to the wrong PSAP and then we can transfer them. That's not the problem. But what I wanted people to realize is that the phone system imposes false rings so that you know the phone system is ringing. We train our staff to answer the phone. Initially, we'd like them ideally to answer on the first ring that they hear, at least by the third ring. Because if they answer on the first ring that they hear, the caller has probably heard three or four rings. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So sometimes when we answer the phone and the caller is already irate and they're yelling and they're screaming because it's taken forever. 
And we get that. We get yeah. that. And so we train them, hey, don't respond to that. Don't respond to the behavior of the caller. Respond to the request for service, the need. Yeah. All right. So when you call into 911, I say my greeting, whatever that is for my agency. Durham 911, what's the location of your emergency? All right. And they start right in. They usually don't listen for the greeting. They're listening for you to stop talking. And that's okay. Right. All right. We are trained to ask them, what is the location of your emergency? When they give us the location, we type that in or we pull it from what's called the Annie Alley screen, automatic number identifier, automated, automatic location identifier that comes up on the screen, particularly if you're calling from a landline. Now, this is another podcast and we talk about cell technology. Cell technology may or may not give us your name and number. It may only give us the closest tower. All right. So when we say, where is your emergency? Some people respond, well, it's right there on the screen. Sometimes it's not. (laughs) Okay. So you still should give them your location. While you're giving me that location, I'm either pulling it from the screen or I'm typing it in. Then I'm going to ask you, is it a house or apartment? That's a valid question. All right. So people got to tell us that. All right. Now, the thing about the Durham agency is they are what we call a protocol driven agency, just like Orange County, where I work. That means that they have a pre-programmed set of questions for law enforcement, for EMS, and for fire calls. So they answer the phone the same way. They say the greeting. They ask, is it a house or apartment? Then they go right into tell me exactly what happened. While they're taking information from you, once they get what's wrong and where you are, they have enough information to what we call route that call within the computer-aided dispatch system that they use for dispatch. So while you're answering the questions, nine times out of 10, somebody else in the room is pulling that call up, looking at the notes, because you can continue to update it while, while it's being dispatched, and they're dispatching the correct response. What slows down the response is when people become argumentative. Why can't you just send one? Why do I have to answer all these questions? Why aren't you dispatching someone? And those are all valid questions because they're they're in a crisis state and we get that. So please know that while you're answering the questions and sometimes I've said to a caller, someone else in the room is going to dispatch the help. I need for you to answer these questions because the answers that you give to the question is gonna help us determine who we need to send. And that's what people got to understand. You can call and ask for us to send one, but until we have enough information, we don't know who to send. What you may tell us may require law enforcement, fire, and EMS, but we won't know that until we get some information. All right. Now, once the call is dispatched, then we have effectively taken that call and given it to the responder. We don't control how fast they drive. (laughs) We don't control how long it's gonna take. Most callers think the minute they disconnect from 911, they should turn around and their service is standing there. We wish it was like that. But the truth of the matter is, is they must drive where they're going. They have to navigate traffic, even with lights and sirens. Anything can happen between the time of dispatch and we hope a safe arrival. When people continue to call back and put pressure on the telecommunicator staff, we are trained them to ask, has anything changed since the last time you called? And if it has, we take that information and then it is broadcast to those field units that are responding. Okay. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, it does. I mean, okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, Andrew, I mean, I've been in the field, so I mean, I kind of know what she's talking about. How, is it helping you out? Is it, are you hearing anything that you hadn't heard before? Or what? Yeah, I'm learning a lot. I didn't. I don't remember. I wasn't aware of how the process works. Or um, I've only called 911 one time in my life, so I'm not really. I wasn't sure about the process of how it works. So yeah, I was educated a lot. And so, Andrew, since you've only called once, what people may not be aware of also is that we are always willing to stay on the phone, depending on the nature of the call. If it's a, a domestic violence, say, say it's that, that type of call and it's an active domestic and the, and the, the victim, the person that, that's being violated, if you will, has snuck away and has been able to make a phone call. Um, we will tell that person, um, you know, 
we're able to stay on the phone. Do you want to stay on the phone? Is it safe for you to stay on the phone? And if it's not safe or they feel like they need to go hide, then I have said to many callers, that's fine, go hide, but do me a favor. Don't hang up, just lay the phone down. And they say, lay the phone down. I say, you just lay it down. That way I'll stay, I'll be on the phone in case you need to tell me anything else. You don't have to call back. I'm sitting right here. But what I really need that phone off the hook for is so I can continue to hear what's going on and relay that information to the responders. Because 17% of law enforcement responders in a domestic violence call are ambushed before they ever exit their vehicles in the United States. So it's very important that we have a phone line if nothing else. And we put that in the notes, call them when to go high, but the line is open and then we tell what we can hear. And if we can't hear anything, that's okay too. Um, but we sit there until we hear them say those magic words of on scene or 1023 if they're talking in 10 codes. And then we still stay until we hear them in there talking to the person and we tell them they can go ahead and hang up the line. And that's just one example. Um, yeah. that's, that, oh man, th those statistics are really, that. that's pretty cool. I, I've never heard those. That those statistics. I mean, I think I know it on some level, obviously. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? But to hear you talk about it from from that side of the, the the call, that's really that's powerful. You know, in a whole lot of ways, because I, I know because that that's domestic violence is probably number one thing for law enforcement. Yes. Uh, as far as injuries and or death is, is is being in the middle middle of that. So that that's that's extremely powerful. I think what I want to kind of you know you've talked about you know, trying to get information. I kind of want to get your opinion and your insight a little bit on, you know, how we need to, just from your perspective, how do we need to evolve into, what is it going to look like as we do police reform? And that we don't, that the community doesn't see 911 as a default for everything. You know, what, what is that going to look like? Because, you know, the, all the discussions now, and I kind of sent you something, we don't, I don't, I think I don't want to go into that too much about, uh, the video that I sent you about, you know, choosing what type of person you want to come. I kind of just want to talk about what do you think that would look like and how do we need to intentionally approach that, that what is that system going to look like when I go, you know, I'm having a mental health crisis. I'm about to commit suicide. What, what in your, if you had a magic wand, what would that look like? You know, so they don't call 911 or does there need to be another three digit number that people call? And there is a three digit number, you know, that, you know, how do we get the mental health persons to help them instead of just defaulting to 911? Um, we're going to need to do uh, serious, and I do mean some serious education. Yes. Um, and we're going to have to do it with consistency on all levels. Right now, in my position at my current employer, I am the face of our agency, so I am getting to talk to children and starting very young, teaching them about 911 and how to use the system and when is the right time to call and when, why it's not cool to, to, to play on the phone and, and, and waste resource time and money. Right. But we also have to reach out and talk to the grown-up part of our society who got that 30-second class, which was in an emergency dial 911. They're the tougher ones because they learn what they learned and they don't want to learn anything new. It, it's a default. Well, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to call 911 because it's an emergency. Right. What we got to teach them is what a true emergency is versus when you might need to call a different resource to get assistance or this is something you really can handle and give them the tools to do that. Right. Um, right. Our system is overtaxed, underfunded, yeah and understaffed mm -hmm. and the calls continue to mount in the number of service calls every year. People are impatient. People don't want to wait. Um, and the system is not designed to, to hold all of what it does. Right. So if I had a magic wand, um, I would have bunches of me, you don't have to look like me, but bunches of people like me that are willing to go out and educate and give people other options and not use 911 as a default. Use it when you really need it because the resources are valuable and we don't have enough resources. So we all are pulling from the same thing. <clears throat> yeah, 
Um, I want to go back to what I think you said as you were just talking about the resources um, and having trying to figure out. Well, let's let's talk about the guy in Windsor, Virginia. Uh, okay. I sent that to you. Uh, that we'll have a link to, to a little bit about the in, individual. He was shot a couple of several couple of months ago, and he survived. But he called, and basically just reason it kind of resonated with me and, and I wanted Gerald to kind of chime in and, and help me with that. And while we're talking about this telecommunicator piece is he called 911, basically he's, the gist of it was his brother wouldn't let him in his mama's room. There's more to it obviously than that, but for me and what we're trying to figure out and you kind of hinted at that is that's not something you need to solve your own problem. The government does not need to be coming in your house trying to stand in between you and your mama. <laughs> you know, and now he walking around with nine pieces of lead in him. He survived it. And, and, and so and then the officers is, is being charged for that. So when she said some of these calls that are coming in are just you or the community or the members of the community not understanding or how to handle their own stuff. Yes. And so now you got the government in your space, Popo. And now Popo kills you because you called about your brother not letting your mom let you in your mama's room, and we get that. And 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 those are the kind of things I think Gerald could 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 also possibly you know there you're calling us about stuff monopoly, but you're calling us about stuff Popo really don't don't need to be in that argument with you because you caught your boo doing somebody else. We don't need to be there for that. <laughs> uh, you need to figure out how to how to handle that. So one of the things that you know we'll talk about it in the future of the podcast that we're looking at is called alternative alternative to violence prevention program, which teaches people how to understand what their triggers are in order to figure out how to have disagreements and solve these issues. So for me, being law enforcement, I'm going to 911 calls to help somebody figure out how to have a conversation with their partner or their family members. And I'm only there for six minutes. I can't help you with that. So what we got to figure out for these communities, my communities, is how do we help you learn how to navigate that without calling the government into your space? And that is training, is education, yes. is training. And then it's, you know, top of what she's talking about, you know, what's really a true emergency, but what is really the fact that we got to help people educate themselves on how to have these disagreements with each other and not calling a law enforcement officer that don't know you. And I'm only going to be there for maybe six minutes. I can't, I'm not going to help you solve that problem. Uh, so I think that's very key. Okay on a bigger scale, but that's part of, that's part of the, the, the resources that are being pushed to the limit and the resources aren't there for us through 911. And, and we just got to figure out how to, that the system is not, 911 is not built to help you get you into your mama's room, just not. And so, like I said, we got that. Do you want to kind of talk about a little bit about this is like I said, this is a gentleman that called 911 about this argument. And then uh, Gerald's going to kind of go a little bit through what she sees from the telecommunicator side of that. And then I'm just kind of, like I said, talking about, I don't really need to be in this. I don't need to be dispatched to this. This should be something he and his brother should handle without calling the popo. Exactly. And so um, I understand they're going to put the link out for you. So yeah. when they put the link out, it's an article, but it also has some live links in it. And if you click on the live link, you'll be able to actually hear, hear the call, which also is transcripted on the screen. And if you hang in there about the eight minute mark, you'll also get to see some actual body cam footage. It's not the greatest footage because it happens at, at night. But when I listened to this, BJ sent it to me and I, I listened to it and the first thing that struck me was the telecommunicator that processed this call for service was very familiar with this caller. She could call him by name. And what that told me is that this is a great example of what BJ was just talking about. This person, his brother, his family, probably are what we call in the business frequent flyers. That means they call a lot. And that when she sees that address and phone number pop up, she already knew which brother she was talking to. That's how much they call, you know, and I, I don't know this to be true, but what I do, but I do think is that based on the audio that I heard that she asked the weapons question, which she should, because she hears him say something that's key on the call. Hey man, let me hold your gun. And his brother begins to argue with him in the background about why you need my gun. 
So she does what she's trained to do. Somebody said the word gun. I'm going to ask, do you have a gun? Do you have a weapon? At first he says, it sounds like he says yes, but then he ends up saying no, nope, very clearly, and it's on this transcript. But because she heard that word, she, and, it, and her job is not only to get help out there, but to also protect the responders. Right. She puts her notes in the, in the call narrative as she should, which sets the officer up to respond to a suspect caller that may be armed. And, and the situation goes downhill from there. He's very fortunate that he, he lives to tell the story. But if he hadn't been on the phone asking for help for a personal problem that he and his brother could have worked out and mentioned a weapon, this, the story might have been something different or there might not have been a story. Yeah, so, so as, yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I appreciate you saying it. As soon as the word gun, and, and because they're professionals, and we're going to want to know, I mean, and then we start adjusting as we're in route to that. People don't really understand. Once we hear gun, we're as we're in route, we're already going, where do I need to stand? What is going to look like? When I mean, we're already figuring out the landscape as to what we're going to be and how we're going to operate, because now they've just dropped a gun into the conversation. Because uh, we all, cause the bottom line is, like I said, we do UN50 for everybody to get home to include the popo. Uh, to include the popo. So yeah, Andrew, you got anything? My question is, um, I, I'm curious about like, in regard to the calls that, sh that you were receiving um, when you worked as a dispatcher. Um, and I guess like hearing the different calls that are coming or that we see now being publicized throughout the media and stuff like that, um, in regard to race relations, just in general, um, there's like this video that I know that were, or probably a few of them are probably that you have seen as well too, of um, Caucasian women calling the police or calling 911 for people for just being black or just doing natural things. And how, I guess like as a black woman, how do you find your placement in answering calls that are similar to those? Or what is your view personally, if you don't mind sharing your, your own personal opinion? I do not mind sharing. And those, that's not a new thing, Andrew. <laughs> that's not a new thing. Um, unfortunately, Caucasian people have always called the police on people of color. I will tell you of a one call that I took when I worked for the city of Durham. Um, and it was a, a Caucasian female. She called 911 and complained because there was a black male standing uh, on her street. And so I, I asked, what was he doing? Well, he's just standing there. And I said, well, perhaps is he standing there because it is a bus stop? I just asked. And guess what, Andrew? He was standing there because it was a bus stop. He was waiting for the public bus service to come and catch his ride. Um, I was lucky because it's not always going to be that way, but they always have, have called the, the police on us. We're standing somewhere. Um, we're doing something. You saw that heightened during COVID, particularly. We can't go to the park. We can't take our dog to the park. We can't, um, we can't have a cell phone. It looks like your cell phone when you lost your cell phone. Right, so we must have stole your phone. Y'all are familiar yeah. with that situation yeah. in, in yes. New York, I think it was yes. New York. Yes. Yeah, so it's always been, been that way. What you're seeing now is that people are tired of it having been that way and we're beginning to respond and that's getting us hurt and getting us killed. Right, how do you gauge in regard to um, receiving calls such as those as to what's really danger and then what's not if someone calls the police on whether be it may black people who are necessarily being black or actually endangering other people's lives how do you gauge what's danger and what is not based on um, we asked we asked the questions as we we are trained to do and because we're working now with mostly protocol driven agencies we have to ask the scripted questions and based Andrew on their response then we point and click on then it'll take us to the next thing but if I can just pause there and tell you what it used to be like before we were protocol driven was you had to fix your face and your voice tone <laughs> and take the information, no matter how I felt about it, because some of it was very offensive and is very offensive, but you take it, you put the notes in and we dispatch the call. Um, that is the professional part of, how, of doing the job. How I feel about it as I feel as an African-American woman, it's not only you, Andrew, that a person will shrink back from in an elevator and clutch their purse. It's not just you because you're a black male. They'll do the same thing to me or BJ. Um, it is the color of our skin. And it is 
however they have been taught to, to view us as a people. Um, and so how do I deal with that? I deal with that professionally because that's what I'm supposed to do. How I feel about it is it's sad and it's, um, it's annoying. It's annoying, but it's all in how you respond to it. I think that's gonna be key. Cool. Thank you for that. BJ, can I ask like one more question? Absolutely. Yeah, go right ahead. My other question is, this is necessarily, I guess it's related to that, but then it's kind of, I guess, not related to it in the same sense. Um, but I've read, I watched a couple of movies and also read a few articles just on 911 dispatches just in general. But how do you, when you were working specifically in that field, I know it can be an emotional, like pulling type of um, role. And I guess like, how do you, or did you have to apply apathy to some situations where if you heard situations that were people were screaming in your ear, like I could, I know personally, I couldn't imagine doing what you did. Like I commend you for the work that you did because I know my emo, I would leave and be crying every day when I would be going home just because of the the emotional weight that I had to take on every day. Or how, I guess, how did you cope with dealing with that position um, emotionally? Okay. That's a great question because um, what we tell people when we hire them is it is a very stressful job. And here's another stat for you, BJ. It is number three on the scale or on the list of most stressful jobs. All right, we're behind uh, air traffic controllers and neurosurgeons. Whoa. We're number, we're number three. Wow. And I'm so what, what they tell us with the stress is um, you have to have some good coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say, Andrew, that you couldn't do the job. You have to let the training, you have to let the, trust the training and let the training work. So we sound very ap apathetic and we sound very, you know, in control while we're on the phone, 99% of the time. Um, and how you do that is you let the training work for you, but it doesn't mean that we don't feel the caller's pain. I'm not gonna tell you that I've not hung up and had to go take a break, that I haven't cried after I hung up because I'm always struck, even now at how horrible we can be to each other yes. and, things, and things that people will do to each other. You just, you're like, are you kidding me? Um, I would rather be cussed at and oh, I have been <laughs> um, than to hear some of the things that people do. So good coping mechanisms. The, when I came back in the day and BJ, they probably told you the same thing. When we leave work, when I close my locker, I left work at work. I trained my friends and my family not to ask me about what happened. Oh, I saw this on the news. I trained them not to ask me because I wasn't going to discuss it. I told them for 12 hours, I have lived the news and I don't want to discuss it when I get off. And you really have, a, have to have a separation. That doesn't mean that it did not weigh on me. There are some calls that were very, very tough to take, tough to listen to that, tough to know that I've done everything that I can do. And even though I'm the first unit on the scene, I'm not there physically, you know, hanging on that uh, on the line with a lady. This was a real call that I took. Um, she was at a friend's house. She was nine months pregnant and she was at a friend's house trying to get some sleep. Now, I don't know why she couldn't sleep at her house. I didn't ask her that. <laughs> she called because somebody was at the door and it's what she said. They're knocking on the front door like they're the police. And I said, well, did you peep out to see him? Do you recognize him? And she says, I did peep out. It's a guy. I don't know him. So while I'm on the phone getting the information from her, you know, I got the address. I got, I've, I've made the call. I've routed it. I'm still getting information. Um, and she's trying to tell me what he looked like. All of a sudden she went from chatty to silent. And she says to me in a whisper, help me. Now, I've already told you she's nine months pregnant. Where can she hide? Uh, absolutely nowhere. So what's happened while we were talking is the guy has left the front porch, gone around to the side of the house, found an unsecure window, come in the window, and is standing in the doorway of the room, and she can see him, and he can see her. So that's a situation. So I said... Is he in there with you? And she says, yes. World's dumbest criminal. There was a phone in that room. He picked the phone up and says on the line, who this? That's exactly what he said. And I said, 
This is the police. He hangs up his extension, runs to the window, jumps out said window. It's raining and muddy. But right about that time, the police say, we're on the scene. They actually said, we're 1023 Durham. They see him jump to the ground and chase him. He falls down in the mud and they apprehend him. She goes into labor and I have to dispatch an ambulance. Baby's fine. Baby probably grown now. That happened very early in my Durham career, but it scared me to death. All I could think of, Andrew, at the time was this lady is going to get killed and I'm going to be on the phone with her. There is nothing I can do but stay on the line. I'm not there, but pray for the police to get there. And they did. Um, and that's kind of, I hate to say a typical day, but that's day shift. That happened during day shift, um, a, a dreary, rainy weekday when she should have been able to take a nap. But there was this little band of bandits running around Durham at the time, BJ. I don't know if you remember this. And their MO was to bang on the door. And if you didn't, they didn't get a response, then they would break in. Yeah. And it was around the same time when several, a couple of them actually got shot by homeowners that were home mm -hmm. and, and, and decided to take matters into their own hands. So um, I let the training work. I was very, very grateful. Um, and I was working uh, in the center that day and, and it went down in history that I took a break like a real break. I left the center. I was like, I need to take a break after this call. Tore my nerves up, but I was so glad that it turned out the way that it did. So so what kind of coping tools or skills, what kind of, you know, what do you do to kind of decompress? You know, and, and I, I hear you say that because you're right. I mean, we, I, it's a lot, it's a lot. I mean, you hear it, we see it, but we got to figure out how to process it. Cause I still ride by different places in Durham to this day. And I know what happened in that house. I yeah. know what happened on that corner. And I still have that in my head. I mean, so we, you know, I've had to deal with that. I mean, it's it's a little bit of that PTSD on a, on a, on a small scale, so to speak. But what kind, of, what kind of coping skills or tools do you use to process? I mean, I do cartoons, you know what I'm saying? That's what I do. I, I watch a lot of cartoons, Let's turn, crank up the music in the house sometimes. So what are some of the things that you do to kind of help you decompress? For me, um, I spend... A lot of time, well, now I'm married. I wasn't, haven't always been married my whole career, Andrew. So um, I'm married, so I spend time with my spouse. But when I wasn't married and I was single, um, I spent time with my mother, my friends, family. Um, I'm trying to make some good memories, have some good times that are stress-free. Because I think tele telecommunicators also get a little PTSD. It's more traumatic for us because what we imagine are in our mind is probably worse than what you actually see on scene, but we don't get any closure. Every time we answer the phone, it's a new job. And so we rarely ever find out what the closure is. The other thing I used to do, BJ, is I wouldn't watch the news. I watch very little news. Mm -hmm. I might watch the world news, but I didn't watch local news because I felt like I'd already lived through that. Right. And it was traumatic enough for me. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, um, I'm also traveled a lot. I still travel, but back then um, I could travel even more because I was single and and it was a great, it was like to get away, if you will, and just really just kind of lay the job down. It becomes a part of you and yeah. and you have to, you have to, to really be work hard to divide your life from work life. Mm -hmm. You know, your family from work family. We spend a lot of time with the people that we work with and you don't ever know what you're gonna get on the other end of that line when you say you're greeting. So you just have to be ready. But the calls that I can still talk about are the calls that really made an, imp an impression on me in my career. That's why I can still talk about it. Right, cool. Andrew, you got anything else? We're gonna get ready to wrap this up because I got to get on the road. All so right. you got anything else, Andrew? No, I really appreciate you for sharing your story. That, that hit me. Because I, I, I've never I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a 911 operator or someone who has served in that position before. So I appreciate you for sharing your story. Oh, and thank you for having me. And um, I know Sharina couldn't be here tonight, but I'm always willing to come back. And and we can definitely drill down on some other aspects of 911 service, uh, BJ, as you see fit to do so. Thank you. Yeah. And and just so, yeah, we're, we're Gerald and Sharina and I are talking about how to how to work together collectively together uh, for UN5O to, to help communities 
and talking about how what 911 calls look like, how to make those 911 calls, what that looks like in conjunction with you and 5.0, getting folks there safely and, and all those things. I'm looking forward to working with, with uh, Serena and, and Gerald. And I really appreciate you you joining us and, and giving. I hope folks learn a little bit tonight. It's an, And one thing that we want folks to understand is not what 911 is and is not. And then also trying to help folks understand that we need to figure out with purpose and intention as to what something else looks like for police reform to help folks who are in other crises uh, beside needing to use what we now appears to be in a lot of our marginalized and black communities as default for everything. Um, and because we don't want to keep calling the popo to your house and then you get killed and you brought the government in simply because you and your brother can't figure out how to resolve your problems. Uh, we want to kind of help folks figure that out. So I really appreciate your, your time and I appreciate your, your other half uh, that's with you, that's gonna get you home. And I hope you guys have a safe travel. Again, I really Thank appreciate you. it. Uh, uh, anything that you'd like to before, cause I, you know, I kind of like for you to kind of, anything you'd like to leave with the citizens, the community folks that are listening, just a parting word, a word of wisdom as it, as it relates to 911. Most definitely, I, I was gonna ask for time. So thank you yeah. for giving it to me. Oh, yeah. Um, what I want people to know is that uh, when you call 911, or if you call in a seven-digit number to get into the communication center for service, but particularly 911, if you change your mind that you no longer need the service, please do not hang up. If you hang up, they are trained and have policy and procedure that they will send a police officer to your address to make sure that you are okay. So if you change your mind, simply stay on the line, or if you misdial, simply stay on the line and just say to the person that answers, um, I'm sorry, I no longer need the service, or this is a misdial, but I didn't wanna hang up. And they will say, thank you so much for staying on the line. Have a good evening, good day, and they will disconnect with you. Because every, land, every line that gets abandoned by someone that called must first be called back and then if we can't get you back on the line to tell us that everything is okay, we must send someone to make sure that you're okay. Wow, cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for that wisdom. Uh, Andrew, you got any closing words? You good? No, that I can think of. She closed it. She did close it. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so thank you folks. Like I said, for those of you that are joining us and for those of you that are newly joining us, mm -hmm. uh, thanks for coming and, and hanging out and listening to us. I hope you picked up some tidbits. Uh, as always, stay well, stay safe, and peace.